Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, grab a seat. Daniel chapter 3, as you're turning there, I want to remind you of of a couple things that we have going on. Uh, Not just a ton of announcements, but announcements with a real important purpose. Uh, One of them is we are are less than a month away from the new building opening up. We... um, we took some of the leaders through there a little bit earlier today. It's still not done, but we're getting close. And one of the things that's going to be in there, uh, open seven days a week, is a new coffee shop. Uh, open 8 p.m. 8 p.m. to midnight. It's going to be a cool place to study and hang out and drink uh, better coffee than most places, or, or at least better than some places, we think. Um, but if you're interested in working there, it's literally a functional coffee shop. We would literally be paying you to work there. Uh, scan that QR code. Find that app, uh, or it's a Google form that you fill out. And uh, you can apply. We had like five people apply earlier today. We'll start those interviews pretty soon. But if you're looking for a job that's a part-time job that's at a church, it's a really cool environment. Um, It's not really Chick-fil-A because we will be open on Sundays. But um, it's just going to be a sweet place to hang out as a part-time job. So uh, do that. Another QR code. Be quick. All right, we're going to the next one. Um, All of our mission trip interest stuff is kind of out there now. So if you're interested in a mission trip this summer or before then, we have some stuff during Christmas. We have stuff during spring break. Uh, May, right after graduation, right after school ends, and then all throughout the summer. Scan that QR code, check the boxes on whichever trip you're interested in coming on us with. A couple big ones. Um, We have a possible trip to the United Arab Emirates during Christmas that's going to be like three or four people. If you're interested in a pretty extreme trip, we would love to to have you on that one. And then uh, spring break, Saturday to Saturday of spring break, we're taking 20 people to Costa Rica, uh, working with working with, with a local church in Costa Rica, basically doing a ton of evangelism, just going and invading that part of Costa Rica. And yes, while we're there, we will take you zip lining and you might see a monkey. Okay, if you just wanna check those boxes, that's fine. But more than that, we want you to see the world in a different way um, and be a part of a really cool trip. And then going to Japan, going to New York, going to Kenya. Uh, I don't know where else. There's a couple other trips that are on there. So just scan that. And we want you to be with us on mission. Now's a great time to jump in because we can help you with fundraising, help you like, how am I gonna tell my mom? On this. Uh, we can help you walk through all of that. So scan that one. And then lastly, uh, we talked about this this morning. Some of you are like, what? What is this? Um, every year we help our Bible studies kind of come together in a u- unique way by doing these challenges. And sometimes it was like carry a couch around the community and take pictures with random places. And then it was a, uh, a, 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 a refrigerator. And then it was something else. This year, this year we just decided it's going to be a really big bear. Um, so Spencer's bringing out this eight-foot bear. We we named her we named her Bear Sheba. Um, but but I but I want to take a really quick vote on this because I didn't I didn't want to just be stuck on this being Bear Sheba. Today my 12-year-old goes, hey, we should have called it Bear Rabbis. <laughs> Which, which got, I was like, bring us Barabbas. Um, it just got me, like, homeschool kids make me laugh. And so, um, and so if, if you would rather call it Beersheba, which might be offensive, but I think it's funny. Um, if you want to call it Beersheba, just let us know by screaming. What about Barabbas? Okay. 
yeah, we're gonna stick with Beersheba. Um, because one of the bonus ones now uh, that's going on the, the list of difficult things to do worth 100,000 points each is on a roof in a bathtub. And so, uh, but please, please don't put water in the bathtub. She's already, it's gonna be a disaster after four months. If, if she's fully functional at the end of this with all of her appendages attached, it's going to be a win. Um, but your Bible study leaders have these lists. They will begin to plan trips with Beersheba uh, to places to do some of these things. If you want to, like, take a picture of that or whatever, it, it's okay. They already have it. Some of you are like, hey, I already know a current da- Dallas Maverick. I'm going to call Luca. Luca's going to be with the bear. That's going to be sweet. Okay, so... Uh, swing big. It's going to be fun with Beersheba. Thanks, Spencer. You can carry her back out of here. Um, that's, that took a real sad turn, Spencer. I mean, she's tall, but if you know, she got long legs. Man. Okay. Eight foot tall bear. All right, let's go. So, Lord help us. Um, Daniel chapter 3. We've been walking through this and and helping us kind of understand what God is trying to say through Daniel. And and here's the big picture that we said in the first couple chapters, is it is is okay, and in fact it is right for God to put you into difficult situations for his glory, To, to put you into difficult spaces so that you have the opportunity to put on display God's grace in you to put on display God's providence over your life, to put on display God's sovereignty over the situation, and you should be okay with that. Some of you would would loudly declare, like, right now you're in that space. Some of you, when we advertise mission trips, you go, that's probably going to be my space because I know I'm going to have a a difficult conversation with a parent that's going to lead to probably, and hopefully, I'm going to pray this, a difficult trip for you, and God does that. He puts us in these situations for his glory to be put on display in your life. And he's good to do that. Now, Daniel chapter 3 takes this a little bit, a little bit farther for, health, for us to understand maybe what it takes to be in those situations. Now, some of you may recognize this name. Some of you may not. The name Desmond Doss. If not, if some of you are like, yeah, because you like the movie Hacksaw Ridge. All right. Now, I'm a rom-com guy. Okay? I just am. That's where I function. Three of three of my. T- you can hiss all you want to, but you'll be single the rest of your life. Okay, you better get. Um, you better you better find your way into like just loving Sweet Home Alabama. All right. Now, three of my top five favorite movies are romantic comedies. Fever Pitch about the the 2004 Red Sox. Glory to God. And that my wife and I started dating. There's this really deep connection that I just love, and it's a it's a cool story. Jimmy Fallon, Drew Barrymore. He's a terrible actor, but he made the movie great. Okay. Um, then you got Sweet Home Alabama. I mean, it's just like it's okay. The, I found my people. That's fine. All right. But in the middle of this top five, which includes a weird Christmas movie, um, Hacksaw Ridge just lives there. Why? If you haven't watched the movie, go watch the movie. Because here's, here's Doss. He's drafted into the U.S. Army during World War II, but he's a pacifist, which means that he interprets Scripture to say that he can't harm another human. And in that, he just has made the declaration as in the military that he's not going to pick up a weapon. And so he becomes a medic. And he goes out with this platoon, and they are in Okinawa, Japan, and they come under fire on this cliff where they get kind of ambushed by the Japanese soldiers, and the entire platoon basically gets mowed down on top of this cliff to the point that nobody can get up there and help them except for him. 
And he knows that he, if he goes down the ladder, he's probably going to die, and he can't carry anybody down because he's a tiny little human. And so he, he rigs up this little system, this pulley system, and he's crawling on the ground, and he's dragging men who are wounded down to this little basket that he's built and lowering them off of this cliff because he knows if he leaves them there, they're all going to die overnight. And this becomes a man who has never picked up a weapon, but President Truman recognizes Doss, and he says that he's one of the bravest warriors of World War II because he rescued 75 men off of that cliff. 75 men owed their life to this guy. Why? Because he was a pacifist? Because he wouldn't pick up a weapon? No, because he had this thing called courage. He could have at that point been like, I'm living, I'm breathing, I can get down the ladder. In fact, maybe I could take one person with me. I mean, maybe I can muster up the strength to carry this heavy soldier down. No, he comes up with a system to save 75 men, and he gets the Presidential Medal of Honor given to him, and he's never picked up a weapon, but he's just courageous. And I would say this, great things in the world are only accomplished through courage. I mean, lots of people have really great intentions but great things come to pass through courage. And so let me ask you, how many of you consider yourself to be courageous people? Just raise your hand. You're just courageous. You got that, you got that thing in you. And it leads to like really cool YouTube videos where people just call you stupid, right? But you're, you're courageous. I, I would love to raise my hand to that, but I, I'm not. It's been proven in my life over and over again. Walking to the deer stand at night. We used, to do, we used to do land management for a guy who had high fence, and he had like 250 head of cattle. And there's nothing scarier than getting out there like 3 o'clock in the morning and walking, and you know those cows are following you. <laughs> and you turn, and you got your headlamp on, and you turn to look at them. There's like 100 little eyes. Just like, and you're trying to decide which one of those is like a psychopath cow that's going to come after you. And then you turn back the other way, and you see little bitty eyes in front of you. And at that point, you go, oh, that's a skunk. You turn into like a, just a chicken at that point. You ride a cow out of there. I was sitting in a deer stand one time and I watched a bobcat run underneath me. And I was like, that was cute. I feel good about that. And then I heard him climbing the tree I was in. <laughs> and, and at that point I went, I'm gonna be on the news. This is gonna be bad. And so like he climbed all the way up above me and I had in my mind, like, I can't shoot him with the bow that I have. Am I going to be able to grab this cat and throw him out of the tree? <laughs> he's going to land on his feet because that's what they do. And he's going to run back up here. Like, like I, I, I want to think that I'm a courageous person. But if I'm laying in bed at night and I hear a noise outside, I'll go like, Alyssa. <laughs> you wake. Um, that's just kind of how we are. It's not naturally courageous people, but we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3 the courage that it takes to be a bright light in a dark space. The courage that it takes for, for these three little Hebrew boys to shine in Babylon, and maybe the courage that it's going to take for you when God decides to put you into difficult spaces in order to, to be the light that God has called you to. And, and I wrestled with this idea of courage versus faith. And I, I came to this conclusion, and you can write this down if you want to in your Bible. This is a good thing to hold on to. Courage equals confession plus conviction plus confidence. A lot of C's there, and, and I did that on purpose to help us remember it. But, but courage equals confession plus conviction plus confidence. 
And, and I wanted, in preparation for this, I was really just leaning towards the idea of faith, like it takes faith, you got to have faith and, and all of those things. But the idea of courage kind of resonated with me a little bit more on what's happening here. And I, I read this book in preparation for this, and I'm actually rereading it as I'm going through here. A, a guy named Brian Chappelle wrote this book called The Gospel According to Daniel. And, and it's a really good way to think about the, the book of Daniel. And he wrote this. I want, I want you to see this entire quote up there. If you want to take a picture of it with your phone, that's great, because it's a, it's a phenomenal quote. But I want to read it to you. Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It's confidence in a sovereign God. We trust that he knows what we cannot discern, plans what we cannot anticipate, and secures our eternity in ways beyond our fathoming. Our trust is not in the quantity or quality of our belief. Our trust in God is not built on insights we possess or wishes we manufacture. The Bible does not teach us to look inward to discern what we should be trusting. Faith is not confidence in our belief, but confidence in our God. Any other perspective will ultimately harm our faith. And I love that. Faith is not confidence in our belief. And you can connect that to what he did before. Like our belief is not a, a quantity of our belief or a quality of our belief. If I just believed enough, then God would do this. That's not what faith is. Our faith is a confidence in our God. And any other way of thinking, any other perspective ultimately is going to harm our faith. And this is what we see come alive in him. This is why I went to courage, which, is, which was basically their confidence in what God was going to do versus faith. And so what does it look like to have this courage starting in verse 1? King Nebuchadnezzar, we're just going to call him Nebi from now on. He made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Which, is, which basically at this point has declared war with God. If you paid attention, if you were here when we went through chapter two and the, the dream that he had at this point, he's going, okay, and you're gonna see why. He's just declared war. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. King Nebi sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend a dedication of the statue King Nebi had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, all these people, all right, they assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. This is an important statement there, just you can underline it. People of every nation and language, you are commanded. Verse 5, when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre, and the bass drum, and the Nord, and the, and the electric guitar. All of the instruments, when it starts playing, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebi has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, King Neb here is, he's a little hard-headed. Because what we were talking about, his dream in chapter two was that there was this gigantic statue and the head was gold. And Daniel was like, yeah, that head is you. And then there's going to come all these other nations after you that overthrow you and they're going to rule, but you're just kind of that part right now. And he said, no, like, thanks for interpreting the dream. You got the dream right. And, and maybe the interpretation's fine. In fact, you can be in my court now, but you've told me that if I'm the gold head, what if I made the entire statue out of gold? That'll show them. And so he builds a 90-foot-tall gold statue. 
representing not only like his kingdom, but he's going, there's no other kingdom that's going to overthrow what I have built. And when Daniel's like, yeah, here comes this stone that no hand touched and it wrecks the whole thing. That stone is Jesus. He's going to wreck your kingdom. And he's like, well, if I built the whole thing out of gold, then maybe this Jesus isn't going to, to do that. And, and you got to remember what King Nebi said in verse 47 of chapter 2. The king says to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. He was a king. He's the Lord of kings and he's a revealer of mystery. And so he, he puts God in his rightful place, but then he kind of goes against this, and he's like, here's my 90-foot statue of myself, gold from top to bottom. I'm going to make sure everybody bows down to it. Uh, I think the lesson learned from the dream has now been flipped. And, and so he's just like, I'm going to make my kingdom stand. Verse 4, this is important. The herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation, language, you are commanded. This this language happens one time previously in Genesis chapter 11, where every people, nation, tribe, and tongue had gathered together in Babylon to build the Tower of Babel so that they could, they could figure out a way to get to God without God's help. Like, we can make it to heaven. We'll build a tower big enough to get there. And God, in his grace, scatters them. You're not going to do this. I'm going to confuse your language. I'm going to send you everywhere. Is this not something that you can actually do? And then and if you think about the language, it was, it was promised, it was promised to Abraham, hey, that like you're going to be the father of many nations, and one day they're all going to be gathered back together, and they're going to be worshiping at my throne, and it comes alive from the apostle John, who's going in Revelation, I have this dream, where everybody's gathered together in the book of Revelation, and it happens, why? Because it's Jesus' fault. And King Nebi here is going like, hey, no, I can do this myself. Bring everybody. I know the language. I know the people. I know what you're promising. Just bring, bring everybody, and we'll have all of the nations back together, and they'll bow down to me. And so this is, this is the command. This is what he's calling them to do. And this is how it goes down. Verse 7. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the nord and the bass guitar and uh, Zach playing the bass drum, it's probably happening, every kind of music People of every nation and language, what they do? They fell down and they worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebi, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the, I don't know why they keep naming all these instruments, the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the drum and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Here comes the tattletale. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. And so the music plays and everyone bows down. And, and we don't know how many people there were, but a lot of theologians would say that there's probably about a million people gathered. It's a weird form of Woodstock happening. And, and they're gathered together and they bow down to worship and then, and then they... You look out across the sea, there's these people up on the stage, and they look out, and it's, it's faces down. They're all bowed, and they're like 200 yards back. They're like, what? who are those guys? Wait, those are teenagers. Oh, those are the Hebrews. We got to go tell on them right quick. And, and so they, they tell on these teenage boys, and, and they, they bring them up there. And I, I just can't imagine, like you can't imagine those, the, 
those three are sitting back there, and everyone else is bowed down, and they're like, are we going to? No, we're not going to. It speaks to the importance of community, okay? It's easier to stand with three. You know, this is important. But they're just standing there, and everyone else is bowing down, and then people, they're probably whispering, like, hey, you should probably get down. The furnace is hot. You, you should probably bow. He's taking this serious. I don't know why he built the big statue, but it's not a big deal. Just bow down, okay? It's, it doesn't even mean anything. Just, just bow down, like, we're not going to do this. And they, they call them forward. Now, some of you at this point are going, hey, hey, John, the book is called Daniel. Where's he at? You would think that he would be back there just cheering him on, like, you go. You're going to get cooked. Um, <laughs> you think he would be excited. And so some people are like, well, this is, this is probably, Daniel's bowing down. I, I don't think you can read that into the story based off of the rest of the story. If you keep going through Daniel from, from four to the end, you probably don't get the hint that Daniel bowed down at any point. But he, he might have been away on business. I mean, he was one of the king's guys. Like, hey, he probably sent him away. But if you read what happens at the end of chapter 2, at Daniel's request, this is verse 49, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. More than likely, Daniel's just standing on the stage, looking out at all the people bowing, probably with some form of disgust, maybe whispering in the king's ear, hey, this is a bad idea. Like, I'm going to step over here because that statue's probably going to fall on you. <laughs> like, I think he might have had that trust. And I think he's probably watching his boys in the back going, mm-hmm, it's about to go down. Like God's about to show up again. I think there's an excitement in his voice at this point. I think he's present. He didn't lose his, his, his faith at this point. I think he's present. And then, and then it continues just in a really cool way. Verse 13, then in a furious rage... Nebi gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebi asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I set up? And I said that kind of calm because that's what I see in my mind. I don't know if he's yelling at them. I think he's like, hey, I appointed you to, be, to help rule these areas of, like, I, I trust you. You're one of the mighty men. Like, that, like I have your back. Is it, is it true that you're just not worshiping the statue that I've set up? Verse 15, now if you're ready, when, when you hear the sound, I think he's questioning, like maybe you didn't hear the music, maybe uh, is that the deal? I'm just going to give you a second chance. When you, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the, the harp, the drum, every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire and be careful. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Okay, at this point, we're in verse 15. And so if you do the math and go backwards, it's about 19 verses before where he says, your God is God of gods, and he is Lord of kings. He is the revealer of mysteries. Now, who's the God that can rescue you from this? And, and these words, so good, these brave little teenage boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, I wish they would have told us which one, but maybe they're all three speaking in unison. I don't know. Nebi, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Uh, okay. <laughs> right, like, you can play your music again, and we're going to stand. Verse 17, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. He can rescue us from the power of you. Like, like I, I love that, verse 18. He, he can rescue, but even if he does not rescue us, 
We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Like everything that you need to know about Christian courage is right there. Everything that you need to know about what type of of faith that that drives your courage to be a light in really, really difficult spaces is right here. And I I just want to highlight some of these because there's a boldness within these three young guys that, that help us understand what it takes to take a stand for God in what is going to be a difficult culture, in difficult situations. And the first one's this, like they have this confession, I call it courageous confession is this, that Jesus is the only Lord. That Jesus is the only Lord. I have a theory about why old Nebi is so irritated at this point. Remember how chapter 2 ends? We talked about it. Um, He acknowledges that, that their God is God of gods. That he is Lord of kings. And so it just seems right that they would also acknowledge his God. I did you a favor, Daniel, and your three amigos. I did you a favor. Like, yeah, like your God. He did some cool things. Pay attention to my God for a little bit. See my God. Your God's okay. What about my God? And so it's not their faith. It's not their faith in God that caused the problem. It's their refusal to also acknowledge the divine authority of Nebuchadnezzar that caused the problem. It wasn't that they had a belief in God. He was already okay with that. It was that they wouldn't bow down to him. And so, so hear this. Nothing has changed in our society today. If our, our current Babylon, you have to know that your faith in Jesus is not really the problem here. In our current Babylon, it's your insistence that Jesus is the only way to salvation and he's the only source of authority for your life. That's the issue. Like, you'll never get in trouble for saying that Jesus is your personal savior. But when you make your relationship with him public, that's when it becomes an issue. That's when people are offended by the fact that Jesus is more than just our personal savior because you're gonna say things like, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They're gonna go, hold on, that, that's offensive. That Jesus alone sets the rules about what is right and wrong, about sex, about marriage, about morality, about money, and we're gonna follow those rules. And they're going, no, like you, you can't play that card in our culture. That, that's mean. That's a, you can't do that to people. And so society, for example, is going to say, hey, Christians, you're free to, to kind of have your rules about marriage. You're free. It sounds crazy to me, but you're free to save sex for marriage. That's a weird thought. But if you want to do that, little, little Christian, you can do that. But you do not dare force that on me. You don't dare tell me that your God says that it's wrong for me to do that. In fact, it's wrong for you. If, if you don't bow down to me during Pride Week and affirm what I do is valid in the name of your God, then you're offending me. This is what the world is saying. It's okay to have your Jesus, but you must also affirm what I do. And when you don't, then we'll sue you and have your business closed down. When you don't make the cake for me, we'll come after you. And every one of these stories, I started reading these, and it was a terrible rabbit hole for me to get down because I, I wasn't angry. I was kind of, I was sad at this. Every one of these guys, and it's been multiple that people have gone after because they didn't support something that they didn't believe in. These shop owners and these business owners would go, hey, like I love that we live in a free society and you are free to do that. 
and that's okay. I'm just asking that you not bring me into it. And in that, they said, no, you have to be involved in this. You have to make my cake. And since you're not going to, then I'm going to sue you and have your business shut down. That's the world that we live in. That's the Babylon that we live in. That's the gold statue that we're being called to bow down to. I mean, you're going to hear this over and over again. Oprah, bless her little heart. She, she says this. She's in an argument with audience members about Jesus being the only way to salvation, and this comes out of her mouth. There are certainly more paths to God other than Christianity. I'm a free-thinking Christian. He's like, stop. <laughs> there wasn't a pause there. It just caught me off guard. I'm a free-thinking Christian who believes in my way, but with 8 billion people on this planet, it can't possibly be the only way. What kind of backwards person are you believing that there's only one way to God? Like, like that's the battle that we're up against. The dean at Stanford University a couple years ago forced a group of Christian students to stop sharing their faith on campus with these words. You're fine to be Christians, and you're fine to gather together weekly to worship, but you're not allowed to try to convince others that they can only be saved through Jesus. And he, he says this, all faiths, are, all faiths are equally valid as religions. It's fine to worship Jesus, but you still need to bow to the statue of pluralism, which is basically our culture's version of the fiery furnace. <laughs> so human society today is just like it was in King Nebi's day. Like you're fine to practice your Christian teaching as long as you don't force it onto other people and as long as you bow in the spaces that you're supposed to bow in, you'll be fine. Otherwise, you're not fine. And this is what they're asking of you. They're basically asking you to edit your Bible. Like, they understand the power that's here. They understand it's the most sold book ever. They understand that people have been trying to, to go against it for thousands of years, and nobody's really done a really great job of that. They understand that for some reason this book has a living nature to it and it just keeps surviving. But if you could just edit out some things, then it'll make society a little bit easier the way that they want it to. And we see this on display all the time. If you've been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., you might have wandered over to Thomas Jefferson's Bible, and if you paid attention to it, you realized that that thing's all cut up. Because this is what Thomas Jefferson did. During his day, the academic world was, was pretty irritated against any kind of idea of miracles. They turned against the belief of miracles. And Thomas, like, he just considered those things unfashionable, uneducated, things that couldn't happen. But they really loved the Sermon on the Mount. The Enlightenment thinkers of the day were like, hey, the morality that Jesus taught during that was awesome. It was just like the greatest moral presentation that the world has ever heard. But miracles, like those are just like leftovers of some superstitious medieval kind of society. And so we don't want those in our Bible. And so Thomas Jefferson literally cut every supernatural passage out of the New Testament so that he would have this Bible that was just Jesus's moral teachings. And then if you go across the mall there, to the Bible Museum, which I would encourage you to do, in the Bible Museum is the slaveholder's Bible. Just as evil. And what the slaveholders would do is they would cut out every section that would, that if a slave read it, would make them think that they were equal. This is what we do. This is what the world is like pushing us to if we could just do that with God's word. And this is what the Babylonian Empire was going, hey, you can have your belief, but you need to bow down to what I'm putting before you also. You got to make this work in whatever kind of way that you need to. Like if someone played that game today, they would open the Bible and they would go, okay, we need to cut out everything that Jesus said about sex. 
We need to cut out everything that Jesus said about marriage and about the family. Uh, the miracle stories are pretty cool. Uh, we'll keep some of those in there, but large parts of the Sermon on the Mount would probably just get thrown out. This is what they would do to make it fit in our society. And this is what these guys are against. Culture is saying, hey, it's fine to worship Jesus. You just edit him to fit our preferences so you can still bow down where you need to bow. But hear me, for the follower of Jesus, that's not an option. He's Lord, and we say this a lot, like if, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Like, like following, following Jesus, coming to Jesus is not like ordering at Freebirds. You don't get in the line and go, I, I want that. I don't want that. I don't know what that is, but you keep offering me free samples of it and calling it brisket. Stop. Um, chicken's great. No potato. Who puts potatoes on a burrito? Um, you just, like you go through that way. Some of you do. That's fine. Um, you go through and you just get what you want on there to make like your flavor profile fit. And Jesus is like, that's not how this is. You, you don't get to just play this type of game with your salvation. Like, like I wrote the story in here and you have to follow it. It's not like I, I, I don't want that. I'll take some of that. Thank you, Jesus. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You're either fully surrendered to him or you are living in rebellion. And that's hard for us. But this is what this story is like screaming really loudly. And hear me, if God is the only God, as Nebi says, and he's the only one that can save and he's the only revealer of mysteries, for us to not make that clear, it's not just cowardly, it's really cruel. For, for us to not take a stand in that and to go, yes, he is Lord of all, and yes, he is king of all kings, and yes, he is the revealer of mystery, and yes, he's the only one to save, but I don't want to tell you that because I'm afraid of what you will think. It's cruel for you to not just loudly declare that message. I, I stole this from a friend of mine, and it's worked twice for me on a plane now, and I kind of feel bad about it. But two times I've been sharing my faith with people on a plane. And if you travel with this on mission trips, I won't sit with the team. I'll go, like, let the mission trip start in the airport. Leave me alone. I'm going to sit with the stranger. I want to share my faith with the stranger. I'm probably going to make him mad. But i got a team of 19 people behind me praying. And so let's see what happens. And so I'll sit with them. And, and I had this guy. His name was Kyle. All right, I'm sorry if there's Kyle's in the room. All right, I have a bad experience with Kyle's on planes. I'm on my way with some of our church staff. This is going to sound weird to you. We were going to an audio video conference for our church with some of our media staff um, in Las Vegas. All right, terrible idea. Okay, but it's a really cool conference, and we, we were going to it. They hosted it there. So on the flight, I sit by this guy named Kyle, and we start this conversation. And Kyle is a soon-to-be graduate at Harvard University. And, and so Kyle's a, a big, big brain thinker, and I'm like, Harvard, Boston, all of these connections. I love it. And so I'm, I'm talking to Kyle about this, and I get to the point where I'm sharing my faith. And Kyle's very kind. He's like, man, I love that for you. Like, like, I've never seen anybody so passionate about this religion thing. Like, that encourages me. Way to go. And then I start reading a verse. It's like, Jesus is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And he goes, yeah, but that's not true. I'm like, no, no Kyle, I, I believe that that's 100% true. He's like, what about other faiths? I'm like, well, like, I, be, I believe that they have good intentions, but they're wrong. And, and so this is why this, this has to be this. Like if, if he lied about this and other faiths are also the way to get there, then I don't necessarily want to follow him because my God then is a liar. And, and Kyle at this point goes, well, then I have to share with you that you're the most bigoted, closed-minded person I've ever met. And I was like, friendship over, huh? <laughs> and, I, and I sat there because it, it never feels good to be rejected. And, and I sat there for a minute and... And then the, the pilot comes on and he goes, 
I don't know, I don't know if it made that noise. I just want to do that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, he's, they were preparing to, to land at, in Vegas. He's like, we're preparing our descent. Would you, you know, flip up your trade table? Would you pull your seats up? Whatever they say. Um, and I had, and, and this thought that I've heard before jumped into my mind. And I looked at Kyle and I said, man, bro, I'm glad that this pilot of this airplane doesn't think landing this airplane the same way you do about salvation. And he went, a what? <laughs> I said, like if he was just an open mile pilot, and he was like, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to land upside down in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> None of us would be like, hey, that's a good idea. Uh, you know that, that big tall tower with the roller coaster in Vegas? I'm going to try to put the plane like tip down right on top of it. Just hold it right there. That'll be cool. I said, this pilot knows that there's only one way to land this plane. And he's got some people in his ear telling him exactly where and when to land it. And you know what? I'm okay with it. Like closed-minded in spaces is good because it saves lives. And Kyle was like, bro. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I was like, Midwestern State University 1, Harvard 0. That's what I just did. <laughs> They're like, what? Somebody like, Midwestern what? That's just what I did. Here, here's the deal. Like, we really believe that Jesus is the only way. And, and our little Hebrew friends at this point go, hey, we're not going to bow down. We're going we're to stand when everyone else bows. And even though we know, like we're fixing to get thrown into the fiery furnace for this, an entire empire gets to see us take a stand. And if I die, they still go, they were willing to die for their God. They take this stand. And, and I love this because we talked about it in chapter one. Scholars have drawn the conclusion that the Chaldeans were basically the birth of the wise men. And the wise men were the first ones to come and be like, you are king of kings. They worship at Jesus' feet. And part of that stems from the fact that these three little Hebrew kids take a stand. And this is what he's calling us to, this type of courage. And so what are future generations going to say about the courage and the testimony of your generation? What, what stands are you going to take that the future generations go, there were these people that would not bow down? Because hear me, there are eternal futures that depend on our courage in the present. That's just the way that God works. He's calling you to take a stand. That's what courage looks like. Now, real quick, here's courage's conviction. We see the confession, but here's the conviction. I believe that God can. I expect that he will, but trust him if he doesn't. I believe that God can. I expect that he will, but trust him if he doesn't. Now, there's a lot, so we're going to unpack it really quickly. Christian courage believes that God can. That's the first thing that I see in their answer from this in verse 17. One page off. Verse 17, he says, Nebi, we don't need to give you an answer about this. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from this furnace. We, we believe he can. Like this is where courage begins. The thought in your mind, veggie tells if you want, that God is bigger. He's bigger than your current situation. He's bigger than your problems. He's, he's bigger than all of that. That's, that's it. That's the most basic principle of faith, that God is bigger than whatever it is that you're walking through. Any problem, all of them, he's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than your school problems. He's bigger than the fact that you can't find a girlfriend that you can talk into marrying you. He's bigger than all of those things. He's bigger than your sin. He's bigger than the things that are going to stand in your way. He's bigger than the shame that you bring with you. He's bigger than the grave. That's the thing that he overcame. He's bigger than all of that. And if we would just understand that our God is big and he can. Also, our courage expects that he will. 
I believe that He can rescue us from the, the blazing fire, and He can rescue us from the power of you. He's going to deliver us out of your hands, O King. How did they know that? A little secret. They didn't. They believed that He could. I believe that you can rescue, but, but I don't know. That's verse 18. Like, I believe you can, but even if he does not. They didn't have a full confidence. Like, they believed that he can, but they didn't, it wasn't proven to them yet. But they're like, hey, I'm going to take this little step. And many of the great feasts, the, the feast of, of faith, the, the, the great things that have happened in the Bible were done not because of a direct commandment from God, but they were done because somebody said, I, I heard that God had promised this, so I'm going to take a step, and I'm going to see what God does. They didn't have a prayer meeting before, and God was like, okay, boys, here's the plan. There's a big gold statue. All right. And they're going to tell you to bow down. Don't bow down, because this is how it's going to play out. They're going to pick you up and throw you into a fire furnace, but I got you. Okay? You're going to be good. That wasn't what happened before they went in. That wasn't part of the team meeting. They just believed that he could. And here's a great example. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, make a note. The Philistines are oppressing Israel to the point that they've taken away all of their weapons. There's two swords in the entire camp. Jonathan's got one of them. His dad's got the other one. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan is hanging out with his, like, armor bearer. It's just him and that guy, and they have one sword, and they find 20 armed Philistines. And this is what Jonathan says to him, to the young armor bearer. He says, come, let's go over to the outpost. This is verse 6 of chapter 14. Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. If I'm the armor bearer, I'm going, perhaps? Bro, one sword, and I'm like holding your shield. There's 20 of them, and you're going to bring me a perhaps? You could take this shield. I'm leaving. I, I, don't, I don't function in perhapses. What does he do? They go. He persuades him. They attack these 20 men with that sword and overthrow them so that God would glorify his name. We see this all throughout Scripture. This is Psalm 27, 13. David is going like, I'm convinced that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm convinced. I'm just going to take the steps. I believe that. This is how they're functioning. They not only believe that God can, they are expecting that he will. This, these are all of the miracles of Jesus, if you just look at them. Um, a lot of them don't happen unless someone takes like a really, really weird chance. Think about, think about the story of the woman with the blood disease who sneaks up behind Jesus. You, you know the story that's happening there in Luke chapter 8. Guy comes to him and says, hey, my daughter's dying. Would you come? And Jesus is like, okay, let's go. I want to go care for your daughter. And on the way, he's not thinking about this woman. He's not thinking about anything. This woman touches him. And he stops that. Who touched me? That power has gone out from me. Who did that? Luke 8, 48 makes it really clear that Jesus wasn't planning for this to happen. He's on his way somewhere else. His mind is somewhere else. And he sees or he feels this woman take this chance. And this is what we see. She reaches out audaciously. She takes a dare on God's goodness. She takes a dare on Jesus' goodness and goes, maybe this will heal me. And Jesus feels that and goes, your faith. I love this. He says, I've scarcely seen faith like this anywhere. Because of your faith, you are healed. Your boldness in taking a dare on my goodness is rewarded. Keep that in your mind. Your boldness to take a dare on God's goodness is rewarded. And he healed her. Like bold faith doesn't just believe that he can. Bold faith expects that he will. Now, I'm not saying that, that God is some magic genie lamp that you rub. 
And when he pops out, you get to ask him whatever you want. And in his goodness, he's gonna be like, yes. This is not how this plays, but what we see over and over in scripture is if we will take a chance on God's goodness, if we would dare to step into that space, if we raise our expectations, then he often responds. This is, Kirk, this is church camp syndrome 101. Because a lot of you, your testimony would be like, God has done some incredible things at church camp. And I would blame that on your expectations. I would blame that on your church's expectations, on your student pastor expectations, on all of those when we go, we're gonna go away and we expect God to do some really cool things and they get there and God does some really cool things. And so we see these guys just raising the bar of expectation, taking a dare on the goodness of God. And so that's my question. Where in your life do you need to take a dare on God? What are some things in your life that you need to take a dare on God? Like, like maybe sharing your faith with somebody at school or somebody maybe that you work with or somebody that you live with and you know it's going to be awkward, but you need to take that dare. Maybe continuing to, to persevere in a prayer request that you think is just so like far out there that God would never answer, you're gonna believe that he can. Maybe submitting to God's call in your life, even though you know that it's going to change your life and the direction of your life. Maybe calling an estranged family member, even though you're not sure how they're going to respond. Maybe it's confessing that sin habit that you, that just rules over you and you need to find that trusted friend and confess that habit. Maybe you need to start a ministry. The Lord has put something on your heart and you need to take that step. Maybe it's signing up for one of those mission trips um, because in the back of your head, you know that when you sign up for that mission trip, it's going to lead to a lot of other mission trips and probably a lifetime of missions because God's been stirring that in you, but you've been avoiding signing up for it and this is your first step. Will you take the dare this is just what I, like, I'm not sure what God is going to do, but I expect that he's going to do something. And so we, we see that, that courageous conviction is that I believe that God can. I expect that he will, but this is the best part. Like, I trust him if he doesn't. I think this is the greatest words in all of this story, but if not, but, but, but even if he does not rescue us, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. They believe that God was not only big enough to protect them, they believe that knowing him was better than anything that they would have to give up. They weren't gonna abandon their faith, they were just going to keep leaning into God and even if it costed, cost them their life, they knew that that was better. They knew that that, that was the better plan for their life. And so, so if you wanna write something down in the midst of this, it's this. Courage believes not only that God is bigger than the opposition, but also better than all the alternatives. Courage believes not only that God is bigger than the opposition, but he's better than all alternatives. Because here, here's the thing, sometimes you take a stand and God delivers like Jonathan, like David, and like these guys, and sometimes you take a stand and he lets you suffer like Jesus did. You know Jesus' prayer, Lord, take this cup from me. And God said, no. And it leads to his suffering. And, and this is what, this, this is kind of the question that you have to ask yourself. If he lets you go into the fire, is he still enough for you? If he lets you go into the fire, is he still enough for you? For you? Because you, you only, like the only way that you'll have the courage to suffer for what is right is if you believe that knowing Jesus is enough for you. And he's calling you to a life of suffering. 
So as, as the band comes up and, and we get ready to respond, I, I want to show you at the end of this story why I see that God is enough here. Because it's not just these three Hebrew teenagers that, that, like this passage is describing, but, but I want you to see that he's enough for me, that he's enough for you, and that this, this story has a promise that directly relates to us. Because here it is, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. He commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of the blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, they're fully clothed, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Okay, so the part where they go, I believe God can. I trust that he will, but even if he doesn't, this is where this is coming alive for them. They're right in the middle of the even if he doesn't. Like, I don't think in their mind they were going, okay, God's going to do, he's going to squash the flames. The furnace is going to blow up before I get there. These men are going to trip and drop us, and we're just going to run off. As they're being thrown in, these guys die. And they're in the furnace. And they're going, I'm still going to trust you. And these three men, verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell, bound into the furnace of blazing fire, fully clothed. What they said God could protect them from, they're right in the middle of it right now. And this is what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, I, like, what is he doing at this point? Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looked like a son of the gods. And so this is what happened. They, they fall in there fully clothed, and the only thing that comes off of them is what? Their chains. The, the only thing that comes off of them is the thing that was bounding them up, clothed, not harmed, walking around with the fourth that looks like the son of the gods. He continues to get these things right and completely miss it. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, all capital, come out. And at, at this point, if, if I'm these three guys, I'm like, nah, I'm good. Like, you see how sweet this is? I'm in the fire with Jesus. I don't even know the, the Jesus of this story. I don't even, I, I'm an Old Testament guy. I don't know that this is the one that's going to come and die on the cross for all of mankind, but this is sweet. We're walking around in the fire. You're tripping out on the outside. I want to stay here. We're going to play some 42. Come out. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, well, we'll go to verse 27. When the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar explained, exclaimed praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He sent his angel, rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except for their own god. Verse 29, therefore I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump for there is no other god who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of of Babylon. We know because of what we've seen in the New Testament that this is the Son of God. He's the the fourth man in the fire. And because of that, they come out of the fire totally unharmed. Now, now stay with me because this whole scene right here just prefigures this Jesus who is going to go through the cross. Jesus who's going to be thrown into the fires of judgment with us. And because he did, you get to come out of judgment totally unharmed. And more than that, the chains that bound you before are broken. This is what Jesus does for us. And so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a hair on your head has been singed with judgment. Your clothes are unharmed. He takes the flame so that you can emerge in safety, not a trace of judgment anywhere on your bodies, not a trace of judgment on your clothes, just the ropes broken. And this is what this means. He goes into the ultimate fire. This fire of judgment, he goes into it for you and for me. The cross. He keeps us totally safe and free from harm there. Don't you think that he'll keep you far from harm in all these other tiny fires that you're gonna go through? The God who died for you in the fire is the God who's going to keep you in the fire. And this is an important thing. Don't search for a faith that's going to keep you from the fire. Search for the God who's going to sustain you in it. This is what he's calling you to. The presence of Jesus with these three Hebrew teenagers in their furnace is the same presence that is promised to you in whatever furnace you get put in. The God who died for you in the fire is the God who's going to keep you in the fire. Like we see this furnace imagery all throughout scripture. The Bible uses it as a picture of trials. We see it in Egypt, we see it in Babylon. The apostle Peter references it. We, we see this all throughout, throughout scripture. And, and let me read it to you again, how this whole story ends. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel, rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except for their own God. Therefore, I issued this decree. Any people, nation, language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And and here's the end of the story in Revelation chapter seven. And I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. That means that they were unsinged, they were unharmed, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And hear me, this world is not going to be unified by some greatness of some earthly kingdom. It's not going to be Babylon. It's not going to be America. It's not going to be anything in between. It's going to be unified by a Savior who goes into the flames of judgment and keeps his people safe. And we get to, and we will help 
move the world to worship by determining right now that you're only going to bow to Jesus as Lord. And you're gonna get up every day believing that he can, expecting that he will, and trusting him if he doesn't. That's the call that we see in Daniel chapter three. Let me pray for you. God, God, we thank you for the boldness of these three. God, we thank you for insight into this story. And tonight, would you just stir us to respond in this way? To secure in our minds any spaces that we're wavering in our testimony of Jesus. Like if you're not Lord of every space, then you're not Lord of any space in our life. And so would we secure that tonight? Would we be people who just fully trust you? Like when we pray the Shema, that you become our foundation, would that just be the thing that is true first and foremost? And then secondly, for for all of us in this room, what are the spaces that we need to take a dare on? Like where are we taking a dare on your goodness? God, would you you call us up? I'm thankful that, like we're kind of spoiled. I don't think anyone here risks being tossed into a fiery furnace, but we also recognize that culture is just difficult sometimes. And you're calling us to take some risks and to hold you to your promises and to challenge your goodness. And would you give us the boldness to do that tonight? God, we trust you by your spirit to push us in the way that we need to be pushed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond and worship.